Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome to Live at Five, the educated home buyer, where our goal is to help you buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership and financing. And how we're going to do that is we're going to address your questions live. We're going to talk about what's actually going on in the real estate, in the housing market, guide you guys through the process, help make sense of, of a lot of clickbait headlines my videos included in that. Um, and with that, Josh is going to be here to help guide us through that process on the mortgage side. Josh, thank you again. And welcome back, my friend. I thought you were going to say we were going to make them educated home buyers by giving them t-shirts. We are, we are going to do that. Um, we're not going to give everyone a t-shirt. Otherwise, uh, I would have to get another <laughs> we'd go job. Bro, we'd go I broke. Get, I would have to get a third job outside of selling real estate in YouTube to do that. Uh, but there is a link in the description. I pinned it to the top. If you want a t-shirt, it looks a lot like this one, but it actually has the phrase um, buy right, borrow smart, build wealth on the back of the t-shirt as well. Um, we made a, a different little, uh, actually, if you click on that link, there's an, a, a picture, if you will, of what it looks like um, to some extent. There's a nice guy and a little girl laying in a bed there. Um, giving you an idea of what it would look like if you were lying beside your spouse um, in bed and you guys were both wearing one. Um, so if you want to try to register for that, uh, click that link, give your information. We'll do a drawing actually next week on the show um, live, give out the name, ship it to you, and uh, you'll have a t-shirt. Josh, um, what's happened? Uh, last week, we came on and the Fed had increased the Fed funds rate, which we knew was happening. Since then, uh, we've had our, our our boy Jay Powell come out and say, basically, inflation is way hotter than we anticipated, and we've got to be more aggressive um, in, in really layman terms. Uh, earlier this week, markets got hammered um, when he said that. Since then, what's actually happened to interest rates? Let's start the show by talking about rates tonight. Yeah, no, he um, he tightened the screws on Monday. So if you look um, last week on uh, the day of the Fed announcement, knee-jerk reaction as usual, rates got a bunch worse, um, recovered some of that by the end of the day, and then Thursday and Friday, improvement, improvement, and we were a little bit better than where we were heading into the Fed meeting. Not appreciably better, not anything you'd really notice on the rate sheet, but slightly better. On Monday, um, as Jeb alluded to, he came out and said, um, inflation's way hotter than we want it to be. We're going to need to be more aggressive to get it under control and uh, gave every indication that half point increases going forward are, are on the table. Um, I was watching a very informative YouTube video earlier that was rolling through the different headlines of projections from one group saying, hey, the Fed's going to hike three times this year. And then one said four and then one said six, one said seven. What is B of A at like 14 or 15 hikes now, Jeb? Is that the B of A's guess I, 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 on I, it? I, I, I honestly don't know. Is that what they've said? 
yeah, some absurd number. But um, the the consensus uh, of what the markets are thinking when you analyze um, the futures market in in Fed moves is saying six and a half, six and a half hikes. So if they go at a half point at a whack, maybe it's only three, and we get there really really fast. Um, if you've been watching, you know that the Fed hikes are the least of my worries. Um, they generally lead to lower interest rates. But um, the saber rattling from from uh, Fed Chair Powell definitely pushed rates worse, a bunch worse on Monday, worse again on Tuesday. Here we sit on Wednesday and we got about half of Monday's losses back. Um, I, you know, I have a hard time thinking rates get a lot worse from here. I also really can't paint you a picture as to why rates get better in the near term future. And by near term, what we're in March here. Um, we're we're going to have to have a clear recession signal before we see any significant improvement in in interest rates. So we're likely going to be down sideways to down for the foreseeable future. If you're in the market, locking would be a really good idea. Um, we locked a couple loans on Monday and had a pretty solid idea of where the market was uh, at that time. But let me dig in here, Jeb, um, while we're going through some other stuff and I can give you some exact numbers where where rates are at. But the, you see the, the press releases, the stuff, the Freddie Mac primary mortgage market survey, I think last week was at 4.19. Um, definitely looking more like the four and a half on conventional loans right now. And most of your government stuff is right at that plus or minus 4% range, depending on how well qualified, if you want to rebate uh, or not. So anyway, you cut it. Um, we were still locking loans under 3% on conventional in December and uh, FHA and VA loans in the two and a half percent range. So we're up a full percent and a half on, on rate sheets or 50% in terms of interest cost, depending on how you want to look at it. So it's definitely... Um, eating into purchasing power in addition to these higher home prices. So Jeb, you and I were talking earlier, what does that mean in terms of supply and demand? Demand is both willing demand and able demand. Um, I spoke to a client, um, this, Jeb, you'll find this interesting. This is actually uh, goes back to uh, the, the interview we recorded this morning for the podcast of saying a client that um, sold in 2019. She thought her home had gone up and she could ring the cash register and take 50,000 out of it sold in 2019. It's only gone up 50% since then. So she left about 150,000 on the table. And with what she has available with prices up and interest rates up now, we can only get her to about $450,000. Here in Southern California, it's not going to get her into a house. So basically priced out of the market. So in terms of willing and able demand, Lots of willing demand. Most everyone still interested in getting into the market. We're having less and less people able to buy. Still plenty of them, which Jeb, you can talk to in terms of the number of offers you're seeing on properties listed. Um, but I can tell you from our end, uh, less of the people that we talk to qualify for a price that will get them a home in their desired market. So they qualify, they're eligible for a mortgage, just not enough to buy in the market they're looking in. No, you said a couple of things that made me think or some things I want to mention. First off, I am going to plug the podcast. You mentioned recording the podcast. So every Tuesday we post a new episode. Again, it's different from what we po we talk about on here in, in, in the way that we go deep on a topic versus talking about a lot of different headlines and then answering questions there. We are very much just going into a topic this week's uh, what the hell? I don't even Oh, this week. We're talking about paying points. Um, so if you're in, in the market to get a loan, maybe you've locked, maybe you haven't. If you're thinking about paying points, go check out that episode uh, because we talk about what points are in detail, when you should pay for them, when you shouldn't really giving you information, 30 minute deep dive into that. 
And again, you can find it on any podcast platform. If you find value, rate it and all that good stuff. But with that said, um, I also want to transition into what I talk about every week, and that is inventory, right? The, the market, the way the, the market is going to balance is that when de- uh, buyer demand and supply are somewhat equal, right? Until they're equal, the market doesn't favor sellers, if you will. And that's the market that we've been in for, hell, 10 years now. Um, and, and here in Orange County today, coming on the on the show, 1,443 active properties. Something to keep in mind, this time last year, we had 2,300 active properties. Now, it was just over 2,300, but it was in the 2,300. So almost 1,000 more properties than we have on the market today. Huntington Beach, today we have 100 active properties. Now, those of you who follow this each week, you're probably noticing a trend. I'm repeating very similar numbers almost each week. Um, but what's important to note here is that any given day in the week, because I look up these numbers every day, right? And depending on what day I look them up, tomorrow those numbers are going to be higher. They they have each week because a lot of people post active properties that are going to be listed this weekend for open houses and showings and that sort of thing. They post them on Thursday. And so what tomorrow you're going to see the inventory levels jump in, in a lot of markets, at least here in Southern California, depending on where you are and how people put properties on market, it might be a little bit different, but what I, but the, the trend is that by Tuesday or Wednesday of the following week, the inventory levels are back down. So properties are coming on, right? Inventory is, is coming on, not at the pace that we would like to see, but it is, but there's still enough buyer demand, even with rates pushing 4.625, you said four and a half earlier. I mean, hell, beginning of the week, 4.75 for some clients out there. And if you're buying a second home, you're probably pushing 5%. I mean, we're talking big numbers here, but buyer demand, is it slowing? I'm sure it is, right? It has to be, but it's not slowing at a pace yet that's allowed inventory to build. You know, Josh and I talk about this every week. All you need is two offers on a property to have a multiple offer situation, right? I've been talking about 20 offers being on properties or 25 or the the case where we wrote a buyer offer and it was 67 offers on that particular property. So that case, you'll have, a you know, some of those <coughs> buyers no longer qualify. Many of them do and will go to the next property because again, there is a fear, you call it FOMO, whatever, but the fear of rising rates at the moment is a real fear. And, and it's something that, you know, while Josh and I have, have been wrong on predictions, with regards to where rates would go, um, especially this early in the year, we don't know what the Fed's going to do. Um, and quite frankly, the Fed doesn't necessarily control interest rates, but they control factors that do control interest rates or, or follow interest rates follow those factors rather. And and with volatility in the market, there's a lot of unknowns. So just make sure you're doing your homework. Talk to working with professionals, people you trust out there to get advice um, and you know, it's it's the best advice I can give you. And real estate's local, right? What I talk about here in Orange County might be a little bit different than your market, right? I, I read an article today that new home sales are down, right? Which to me makes sense to some extent because I know there's supply chain issues. There's there's issues with regards to, um, you know, sh- employment issues and different factors. But every week there's somebody on here saying, well, we've got an oversupply of new construction in my market. Okay, that's your market. In, in in other markets, new homes aren't selling, and it's not because there's not demand for them. It's because they can't finish the properties to actually sell them. Um, and I, I'm going to do some 
uh, a video where I talk about that in more detail, but there's some good information out recently about new home sales and some of the delays happening. So, uh, Josh, where do you, uh, anything else you want to add before we, uh, we get into some questions here? No, on a, a similar topic, and I actually, of course, lost the question here already, um, but Alex followed up and just said, hey, you said Fed rate hikes usually lead to lower rates. Can you please elaborate on that? So as Jeb said, the Fed controls short-term interest rates, things like credit cards, home equity lines of credit. They do not control long-term interest rates. Long-term rates were moving up well ahead of the Fed um, doing anything in terms of Fed rate hikes. You've heard of buy the rumor, sell the fact. Well, they, it, the movement comes ahead of the Fed moving because the markets figured out before the Fed did that they had way too much stimulus, were way too accommodative in 2021. We can argue that everything that happened in 2020 was probably the right move. Shock and awe, they came in, saved the market, dropped rates, allowed people while you're locked at home, not being able to go out and do anything, you were at least able to drop your mortgage rate a, a nice chunk and save some money. Um, into 2021, there was no reason for them to not taper their mortgage bonds in the first half of the year and be out of buying mortgage bonds by the middle of the year. It would have meant we had had higher interest rates last year. It would have slightly put the brakes on the appreciation last year, but it would mean we wouldn't have rates nearly as high as they are now. The reason why rates are as high as they are is everyone believes the Fed was way behind the curve. It should have stepped in and done something earlier, and they still haven't seen much. So in three months, January, February, March, they backed out and are going to not be buying any treasuries or, or mortgage bonds. Okay, cool. Now we have a quarter point hike. We wish it had been a half point. The market would have reacted better. Now they're going, hey, we figured it out. We need to do a half point, and we need to probably have four, five, six total quarter point hikes or a point and a half over the rest of the year. What they're going to do is they're going to come in way too hard, way too late, and then it will push us towards recession, recession slow yeah. the economy, and rates will come back down. Does that mean rates are going to go back to 3%? Um, in the long run, it's quite possible. In the short run, the next six months, 12 months, two years, doubtful. But if you buy a house right now and you get four and a half, and when you started shopping, you were at three, a refinance down to 3.75 is going to look pretty good if you're able to do that in the next year or two. Um, so the answer to the question is, the, the Fed is doing what they need to do to slow the economy. So they come in too late and let the economy get too hot and rates go too high. Then they come in late and too hard, put the brakes on, and we come into a, a hard landing due to recession, which is deflationary. Now, you, the thing you're hearing is everyone throwing around, oh, stagflation. You can have slow growth right. and inflation. That's always a possibility and the wild card that we've never seen in our lifetimes, unless you're one of our very, very older viewers, um, is is war. Wise. It, we like to use wise. Wise. wise one of our wiser viewers. But I mean, if you're 70 or 80 years old, you probably remember uh, a few wars that we were involved in and how that impacted the economy. This one, although it doesn't directly impact us, it does very indirectly impact the global economy, and it may impact how China relates to the rest of the world going forward, seeing how the world has retaliated, not with military might against Russia, but with economic might. So there's always some possibilities that things react differently than they have in the past. Um, you know, I watched an interview last night with Kathy Wood, who is still firmly in the deflationary camp, and it really should be said as disinflationary, not deflationary. Deflationary would mean actual negative inflation where prices are getting cheaper. But we have three major factors that are disinflationary. 
technology. Things get better, cheaper, easier as we go forward. Um, demographics, people are getting older, older leads to decreased productivity, lower GDP, lower growth. And then the last one is government debt. We have massive excessive government debt, which is also deflationary. So if you ask me, where are we three to five years from now? It's with rates lower than they are today, but there's definitely some wild cards in play, black swans, if you will, that um, we're going to have to see how they play out and what impacts they have in the long run. No, good stuff. I mean, there's a lot going on there, right? I mean, we, you know, we started this whole thing um, with a black swan event, right? I mean, that's essentially what created the, the channel that you guys are watching is a black swan event called COVID. Um, and it it didn't turn out to necessarily be a, a, a black swan event in the, in the way that a lot of people wanted to see, which was a housing crash and what have it in what, I don't even know what I'm trying to go. Come, at. come what may. Yeah. Hey, just whatever comes out of my mouth. No, um, it, it wasn't what a lot of people wanted to see, which was, uh, you know, the Black Swan event that brought prices down and what have you. In fact, it, it sent things the other way. Um, but you you just never know what when these things are going to, to factor in. I mean, you know, Josh and I, when we've been talking about interest rates, we never knew that Ukraine and Russia were going to have an issue that was going to create, you know, more more global inflation problems that you know, we're going to play into what the Fed had to, to to make decisions on with regards to the Fed funds rate. So those things impact, you know, everything that we talk about weekly. And while I know a lot of you um, don't want to come in here for two hours every week, it's, it's kind of good to come in here for the first part of the show to get an update on what's actually happening in the market and how it might affect you. So we appreciate you being here. That's what I want to get around to. So um, there's a couple comments here that, that, you know, we're just going to start with, and um, I think are pretty easy to address, but important things to touch on. And JJ says, on month to month on my home, I've been renting, renting rather, uh, bought a new build on long-term lock for 120 days with the in-house lender. It's 4.99%. My closing is June 28th. Did I make the right decision? So JJ, if you're happy with the rate, you made the right decision. Um, whether or not it's, you know, an eighth higher or, or eighth lower or whatever, you know, it, the idea is that you've locked in a rate and you know, at this point, assuming your, your property closes on time, you know what your payment's going to be. That is important in this market is knowing what your payment's going to be versus every day guessing what the market's going to do. And should I lock or should I, there's a lot of emotional stress and anxiety and stuff that go along with asking yourself that question every day. It's like the person asking themselves, should I buy or should I wait? And every day they ask themselves that question. And for two years, I mean, unfortunately, and fortunately, some of you guys have been watching the show and supporting the channel have been in here for a very long time, asking yourself that question while the markets continue to appreciate. So the fact is, you've got something locked in, you're good to go. If you get closer 30 days out from June 28th, and rates have dropped significantly, have a conversation with that lender about potentially lowering your interest rate. If not, go find another lender, right? I mean, we talk about this all the time. It's okay to shop lenders and have conversations with lenders to make sure you're getting a good deal. Now, when you go out and shop every lender and, and you're looking for the absolutely lowest rate and you're talking to 10 people, you're, you're probably going to get screwed just based on you know the whole premise of trying to get the absolute lowest rate. But if you're getting a good and fair rate, and that's essentially what most people are offering across the board, and you're seeing comparisons, and they're all pretty similar, you know, probably getting a good deal or or the best deal that you can can be offered, if you will, when you off when you see somebody offering significantly higher or significantly lower from 
you know, the median, if you will, when, when looking across the board, it's probably somebody clickbaitish, somebody that's not giving you accurate information. So just know that it's okay to shop, but you did the right thing. You locked it in. I know Josh, you probably have something you want to add to this. No, it, just back to the conversation you and I had a, a week or so ago. If if you shop and you get five quotes and one's way too high, well, that's easy because you got three that are that are competitive, and then you got one that's way lower. It's very rare that there's some lender out there with a massive discount. These all go and are sold in the same secondary markets. We all have access to the same funds. And overhead is what it is. It's a competitive market. Like the thing that used to amaze me, I got into this in the 90s. Um, the internet for shopping mortgages Dude, you're was old. old. And when and at that time, the internet for shopping for mortgages was not a thing. You couldn't get information. You could maybe research a basic article about mortgages, but you couldn't compare rates. And you would see things where someone would come to me and they would say, well, this guy promised me this. So I went with him and then he closed and it was like a half percent higher than you offered me. And you'd be like, how in the world do you let this happen? But now it's easy enough to shop interest rates um, that if you have a reputable lender, they all should be in a pretty narrow range. I will tell anyone that if you shop me with 10 different lenders, we're going to be better priced than eight or nine of them. But six or seven of them should be close. They should be in the ballpark of us. There will be some idiot that's trying to overcharge everyone. And there will be another liar out there that's giving numbers that just are not realistic or real. So when you look, get a couple quotes and go with your gut. As long as you have multiple competitive numbers um, and you feel more comfortable with one versus the other. Like the thing that I do, I, I talk to people all the time and they say, oh, I talked to two different people. I go, okay, well, cool. Now that you've talked to three people, what were the discussions like? What's your comfort level? Were they all the same? Were they different? And most of the time they're like, no, the people just asked me a couple questions and then told me a rate. It's not about an interest rate. We're all going to be competitive. I don't, I'm not the Walmart of loans. I don't like shopping at Walmart. I don't buy stuff at Walmart. I don't want to be the Walmart of mortgages. But I also don't want to be the Nordstrom or the Neiman Marcus where people come and pay extra when like the the example or the model is kind of like Target. You know, we know we can get good prices on stuff at Target. It's good value um, and you're comfortable and it's a nicer experience. That's really what you're looking for. But this is an important decision. The mortgage itself is a commodity. A 30-year fixed Fannie Mae mortgage or a 30-year fixed FHA mortgage, at the end of the day, when you're making your payments to the servicer is exactly the same. The cost of them is going to vary a little bit, but the service and the experience and the guidance is going to vary a ton based off of who you're talking to. I'm pretty sure you just killed any potential sponsorship I had with Walmart. Um, I'm going to have to lean more towards target. Now I am very, so, hey, I'm guys, very anti um, Walmart. I apologize for anything he said there, Mr. Walton. Um, no, uh, let's get to some more questions, but good stuff. Uh, here's a good question. And, and something that is, is already happening is, is people, will people veer towards condos rather than single family homes going forward? It's, it's typically in my experience, it's all about budget right? What does your budget allow you to do? If your budget still allows you to buy a single family home, many people will still opt for the single family home for, for whatever reasons, right? There's always, there's pros and cons to owning either one, whether it's a single family home or a condo. And, and we're not going to dive into the pros and cons of each of them, but typically it's budget-based, right? What can you get for your budget? If I told you, you could get a condo for 300,000, or you could get a really 
big, nice house on a, on a lot of land with a pool and a ranch or whatever, you probably opt for the ranch and the pool and whatever because it fits your budget. So typically people go. But what's happening is because prices are higher, less options to choose from, you know, more most, you know, here in Southern California, at least where we're located, there's a lot more condos than there are single family homes just in general because of how they're built. And so, you know, especially in those lower price points. So more people are are opting to go that route just because there's actually property there and they can find something versus looking at the single family home inventory and not really seeing anything. So I see it happening as prices continue to get more expensive. Affordability becomes more of a factor. More and more people will opt for the, the less expensive property that they can actually buy. People will opt for what they can afford. I mean, I'm seeing properties sell, you know, some of these condos around me that I'm like, God, I cannot believe that property sold for that amount. Um, it just mind boggling to me just because knowing the communities and and what have you, it's never a community that I would say was worth that amount, but there's multiple offers, people doing it. So just know what you're, uh, what you're up against when you're out there making those offers. And look at the numbers, Jeb, yep. uh, with current rates, if that four and a half percent interest rate, a thousand dollars of mortgage costs you about five bucks. Um, in our neck of the woods, probably the most common HOA dues are somewhere in the three to 350 range. So at $5 per thousand, to go apples to apples, you're losing $70,000 of purchasing power with the condo. So if you say, hey, I can get a condo for 500 or I can get a house for 700, well, 70,000 of that $200,000 gap goes to the HOA dues. So uh, when we go back in the, the 90s, the ancient days when I started doing loans and rates were eight and a half percent and you had seven or eight dollars per thousand and HOA dues were two hundred dollars, it was like a twenty or thirty thousand dollar gap. So it wasn't as, as big of a deal, but lower rates and bigger HOA dues make them less attractive relative to houses than they used to be. But you're 100 percent correct that we get to a certain point, you know, in certain parts of the country, like for, for us, Jeb, you know, a condo, a, a nice large condo in uh, in Huntington is nine hundred. A nice house of a similar size is a million four. So when we're talking $500,000 difference in price, maybe 80 to $100,000 of that eaten up by HOA. A lot of times the choice is I can't afford the house. I'm going to buy the condo. No. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could give you multiple stories of, of, of people, you know, you know, selling in another state, having to move to California and what their budget got them in one area versus what it gets them here and, and having to rethink, you know, what their plan is. Um, but I won't bore you with all that information. Uh, we'll get some, some good questions here. So, uh, Jason is asking a similar, this seems to be a, a really, uh, the, uh, common question at the moment. A lot of people are asking it. Is it true that you can show proof of funds, represent yourself as a cash offer? Then once offer is accepted, go get a mortgage, close with the loan instead. So essentially what he's saying is, can you make an offer with an agent, um, you know, to purchase a home and say, Hey, listen, I'm a cash offer. So the, the offer that's written up says, Hey, this is a cash offer. You provide the the proof of funds. Now, here's what I'll say. As an agent, whether you're putting 10% down, 20% down, 50% down, I want to see the proof of funds. I want to see you actually have that money in, in your account to be able to buy the house, right? Um, and if you're pulling it from a property or you're refinancing or it's a gift or whatever, that's okay. Just we want to know where it's coming from to make sure you've actually got the funds you say to do to, to, to buy the property. And so with that said, you make the offer, once it goes into escrow, can you change 
the contract, if you will, and, and close with a loan instead. And here's the thing. Can it happen? It absolutely can happen. Um, but you are in violation of the contract. Now, that means that if you if the seller finds out that you're getting a loan and decides that they don't want to deal with that or the only reason they accepted your offer to begin with versus another because it was cash, they can essentially cancel the contract because you're in violation of the contract based on the terms that you wrote in that contract. So just keep that in mind. Now, if you're able to stick to all the other terms in the contract, you're still able to close it within the time frame that you, you say you're going to and no hiccups happen and you close with a loan, is the seller going to get pissed? Maybe some do, but at the end of the day, if they get their money, whatever, most people don't really care how you end up closing it once you're into the process and as long as nothing else changes. But what happens is, you know, cash offers are typically written with very short close timeframes. That's one of the advantages of being able to do cash is that you can close in seven days or 10 days or what have you. Most lenders out there aren't closing loans in seven 10 days. Can it happen? Sure it can, but it's it's typically not the norm. So just know if you're if you're making offers and changing things, you could get a, a notice to perform that says, hey, listen, you said you were doing cash. You either close with cash or we're going with the next buyer. And there's really nothing you can do about that um, if you don't agree. Uh, so just keep that in mind. It's an option for, if you want to go that route. I haven't personally seen it. Uh, but I know that it does happen in this environment. All right. Um, we got a super chat from Richard Hano Hanoyos. Hanoyos? Potentially. It's, it's, uh, usually, it's usually an A on there and it's Hinojosa, but it's Hin he's just Hinojos. Hinojos. All right. Well, you know, Josh's Spanish is coming out strong this evening. Um, we're going to throw him some Korean here shortly to see if we can uh, get that <laughs> I, I one fail. done. I fail Korean every but $2 time. But $2.22, not sure the significance, but I like it, and uh, I'm appreciative it's of it. A it's a dollar eleven for each beard. Uh, uh, fantastic. Um, let's see here. Uh, Rianu Keeves is disappointed that you eat salads at The Habit, Josh. And, um, you know. Listen. I eat everything from the habit, including the salads. I don't have the tuna. Some people actually go there and eat tuna steaks. I don't do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The tuna from a fast food place is... <laughs> Anyhow, um, let's see. So so this is something that, that I think is... Uh, funny um interest rates <laughs> because it's 100 percent backwards yeah it is it is i you know no no um not picking on Oso here but as interest rates keep going up sellers will flood the market specifically or specially especially, especially older sellers no no as interest rates go up you're going to have more sellers stay in place and not sell their property that that is the problem right now is not only do you already have a low supply of homes, home prices are up. Now you have interest rates rising and interest rates rising, not just a little bit, but significantly. There are sellers that are going to go, why Why would I sell my property? It's way more expensive to own something new or to buy something else versus just staying put. So you're going to have sellers actually stay put in their properties. In fact, this Friday, I'm posting a video that talks about this in detail, like the problem at the moment with supply and demand. And um, I want you guys to watch it and give me your feedback on it because I ask a very specific question in there that I'd love to know the answer to. So 
Um, no, this is not right. Interest rates are not going to create sellers. It, it is going to keep sellers in place. What is going to create sellers is more sellers. As more inventory comes out to choose uh, for, for, for sellers to potentially buy, you might see more property come on the market. That might create more inventory. Other than that, your guess it, is as good as mine. It leads back to the question, sell and do what? What am I avoiding? So interest rates are higher. I'm going to sell my house and avoid what? I have to buy another one and either pay cash for a cheaper home or get another mortgage at a higher interest rate than what I already have. Or I have to go rent and rents are also higher than But where's were. the property? You, you, there's no property to choose from. So what are you buying? Yeah. It, it, you, you're salt. You're the solution that you're proposing does not solve any problem. It just makes more problems for exactly. the seller. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, Rianu um, asked another question. Why are investors buying at all time high? Shouldn't the best course be to buy at the low? So Josh, always great to buy at the low, sell at the high. That's what everybody wants to do. But how many people do you know that have timed that in your career perfectly? Very, I mean, very, very rare. Um, I've, we've mentioned Bruce Norris here on the show. Um, Bruce has a very, very solid handle on the market and the numbers. And he and some people that he advised and that follow his advice um, have made some really good timing calls. And his call right now is um, he doesn't really see how we can have big appreciation going forward but also doesn't see where, where we're going to see any decreases in prices, basically calling for, for flat prices for the foreseeable future. But the thing that I will say is people that have watched the market for a long time, when you get to a different or a new market where things don't seem to make sense, um, it can be hard to, to wrap your mind around it. So Bruce has been in the game since the early 80s, maybe as, as early as the late 70s, when in Southern California, we still had a lot of land to build, especially in the Inland Empire where he's based. So supply has was was never the issue the way we have it now. Um, so you always want to be careful when someone wants to tell you this time it's different. But the there are definitely things that are different about this market to what we've had previously, and there are things that are massively different to the 2007-2008 crash. So when you look at that, when you say that's a one-time event that's only happened one time ever, that was the one time when this time it's different. You know, Jeb, we talked earlier today of uh, there's never, prior to that downturn, uh, the media was fond of saying there's never been a year-over-year -year downturn, decrease in home prices in the United States. You're like, well, that's a cool story, but I don't buy a nationwide index of home prices. I buy in my market right. and many I don't markets. I care what's happening everywhere else. Yeah, I care what's many, happening here. Many markets, especially Southern California, has had three or four cycles where we've had corrections of 10 to 20%. Um, that is usual, normal, and typical. Um, and those present buying opportunities. You know, when, when you see a dip, if you're an investor and then the market dips 10 or 20%, you're generally able to step in and get deals at 30 to 40% off because they're distressed or you're able to solve someone's problem. Um, so long way of saying, when you look at the market and there are investors still buying into this market, institutional investors, individual investors, um, the money is telling you that the market has not peaked or they're saying it's still a good place to park money. We've talked well, about this. Yeah, go ahead. 
what we say is the yield on a rental property is pretty attractive. Let's yes. say you're a retiree and you have $700,000 and you're scared shitless of the stock market. You can go buy a $700,000 house and that's going to bring you $40,000 a year of income and it's never going to zero. It could drop. It could go down to 600,000, but the rents rarely drop. So you can say, hey, I'm going to get this yield. I have a hard asset. I can depreciate it. I can get some tax benefits. And when I die, I can leave it to my kids instead of having to draw down whatever is in my IRA or my 401k for the rest of my life. So there's definitely reasons why people would still buy into this market. And some investors are just exchanging, rotating from one property into another. So there's a million and one different reasons of why someone would buy in a, in a highly inflated market like we're in. Well, you said something that's important here. Like you didn't say this, but you know, investors are, are rarely looking at what the house is worth and more about what can it produce with regards to an income every month. And, you know, buying investment property is less emotional. Most investors aren't buying um, emotionally in, in most you know, circumstances. They're buying either because they need to, again, move money from one uh, investment into another, or there's an attractive yield or something about that investment property that they're they're looking at um, with regards to some sort of gain. So it's a lot like, you know, residential versus commercial. Commercial real estate is very uh, number driven, less emotion. It's very much about do the numbers make sense? That's how investors buy. So in a market right now, even though prices are higher, the numbers in many markets still make sense because rents have also um, gone up. And, and so just keep that in mind. Yeah, of course, you always want to buy at the low. But the problem is nobody really knows the low when things go down, right? Everybody thinks, well, it's going to continue to drop further, drop further. And, and many people don't step in um, at that low, they, you know, prices start to retract back up. It's just like a stock, you know, things pull back and nothing happens, you know, buyers don't buy in and then the market starts to go back up and they think, well, another drop's coming, another drop's coming up oh, stocks at new highs. And you never have that opportunity to buy in because it's, it, there's fear associated with it. So it's just a different process, a different mindset when investors are buying property and, and making those decisions. So that's why, um, let's see in the HQ2 Amazon. Shit, I have no idea what that means. Um, any idea what that means? No, I, I saw it myself. The, the I have a house in the Amazon. In, in no, I think it's the Amazon headquarters too, but I'm not sure how you can have uh, your house in the Amazon headquarters. Amazon.com, giant headquarters. He bought a house inside their warehouse. <laughs> what the hell mind blown over here i don't even know what's going on the show has yeah. stopped we got to, we need to stop the show for a moment um we'll come back to that clarify if, if you if you are you're still here uh so purchased new construction apollo supernova uh townhome it appraised for the need of value the appraiser listed the first floor with one bed one bath as a basement even though the first floor is the entrance is that normal it's just how the appraiser is classifying stuff in the appraisal it's it's probably not, I mean, it's, it's clearly not an issue at all. Um, you know, they're just the way they they've done it in their appraisal is is listing it as is. So it's probably just just how they do things um, or are are comparing them against maybe other like properties in that market. But the more important thing is it did appraise. Um, and, and when there's funky things in an appraisal, what happens when an appraisal comes back is the lender reviews it, and if the lender sees you know, things that don't match up for whatever reason, the lender is either going to have them 
correct those those pieces in the the appraisal to match whatever it is that they need to see and or they're going to reject it and make that appraiser do the corrections and what have you. So in this case, if there's no rejections or no corrections being made, there's probably not a problem there. So nothing to, they, to worry about on your side. With the current process of appraisals going through an, an appraisal management company or an AMC, when those reports come back in, they do go through a QC desk. So there's a licensed appraiser sitting at a desk reviewing it. Um, if there was something wrong with it or that would be problematic for the lender, uh, it would it would get called out and they would send it back for revision. So you should be just fine. And this is a follow-up to that one, asking do appraisers factor in the insane year over year for their appraisal, or is it only strictly recent comps? What if there aren't enough homes sold recently in the neighborhood? So there's a number of factors that play into appraisers making you know decisions on what properties are worth. The more important factors are location, bedroom, bathroom count, square footage, lot size. Those are the primary things and, and proximity to the property, right? You want as close to comps as possible, you know, as as like uh, to to the subject as possible, and making those decisions. At the same time, in this market, because things are moving so quickly, month over month appreciation in a lot of markets exceeding what most people have ever seen, they are factoring in things like how many offers there were, how many were above the asking, and and that sort of thing. And and because I have appraisers, you know, we just had one recently that uh, we listed it at a million fifty. It sold for a million three, two hundred fifty thousand dollars over. And I didn't think it would appraise personally. Um, I, I thought it might appraise for over one one between one one and one two, you know, at best case. It just it, it was a nice property, it just needed cosmetic work. And there was really nothing out there like that that had been in that condition. It appraised at one three. So it did appraise at the full value. And the, the appraiser, one thing they asked me is, I, I want to see all the offers. So I sent them all the offers that were associated with that property. So they're factoring that stuff in, but they can't use that to 100% justify the value. It's a contributing factor. Or I don't know the right terminology that they use. It's just a piece of the puzzle when making, you know, the the assessment on the value of that home. So yeah, it's definitely factored in. Um, they even have their own little market uh, summary, if you will, what's happening in the market, you know, month over month. And I think in this one, he said that the month over month appreciation at the time was about one and a half percent month over month. I think it's probably higher than that, but either way, it, it ended up appraising. So anything you want to add to that, Josh? No, uh, it's 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 a tough market. It has been a tough market for appraisers as much as for anybody. Trust me, these guys are not happy to uh, to bring. I shouldn't say this. Some some of them are cranky, but very few. Ninety nine point nine percent of them are not happy when they have a hard time bringing a value in. But um, under their accepted appraisal practices, sometimes it's not possible to bring it in, even when there's multiple offers saying the market value of the home is this. No, absolutely. So, you know, we're at uh, a new point in the show. Um, and what I mean by that is we're at a point where we've never had 330 something people watching at one time. So I'm going to ask a favor and say, you know, if you're finding any value in the content that we put out at all, we're here every week, two hours every week for basically 52 weeks. I mean, we did what, how many episodes last year? 96 hours, 96 hours of, of free content. So if you find any value, hit the thumbs up share it with a friend, somebody buying or selling a property. Um, the goal here is, is again, education, um, inform you to, to make better decisions. Um, and if you didn't hear me earlier, want to win free t-shirt, 
I don't know. Maybe you like it. Maybe you don't give it to somebody. There's a link in the description that's pinned at the top. You can do that. Uh, name, are you going to, are you going to model it stuff. again? Like you did the first time? I did. I, there's a better model in the, in the, in the photo and she's I don't on the know. right. I, I, the yeah. right. Um, I was going to say listen. Jeb better looking than the guy laying in the bed with her. Wow. You know, this is getting really, uh, this is getting really weird. Josh. Now, now they're going to, now they're going to click and they're going to go, what, what, who's laying in where, what? And, and so on a side note here, I'm going to, so I, Josh, I, I forgot to mention this earlier. So, so Mr. Many of you guys know who Mr. Beast is. If you follow YouTube, or if you have kids, you definitely know who Mr. Beast is, but Mr. Beast, is is that is the guru of market i mean like the stuff he pulls is fantastic i mean just on many levels you have to appreciate it if you're a marketer in any sense of the word and the reason i say this is because i just got an email that the mr beast bars that i ordered for my kids were delivered today and his marketing tactics so he's basically opened a chocolate factory in in texas and he's put golden tickets in these bars and if you win if you get a golden ticket, you get to go. It's like Willy Wonka. Like we all as a kid wanted to go and be in the chocolate factory. He's recreated it. This is fantastic. I mean, I'm like, I'm excited. I told the kids, I'm going to open the bars. And if I win, I'm going. You guys aren't going. So I was just excited to see the email notification coming up. I got free chocolate or not free. <laughs> they weren't free they, they chocolate weren't bars free. at the house. I paid a lot of money for those chocolate bars. I, um, I introduced Lori to Mr. Beast and she wants to know when our chocolate bars are arriving. I told her she's going to have to order them. I can't do everything around here. Yeah, no, I, I ordered 30 chocolate bars. It cost me a hundred bucks for, for 30 <laughs> chocolate bars. <laughs> and the best part is my kids just want to open them to see if they got a golden ticket. They don't even want to eat the bar. I'm sure. Uh, but KD says, what market cycle phase do you think we're at? I feel like we're in phase three. So Josh, um, maybe someone can help me with how, how many total phases do we have in this uh, this cycle? Is it five or seven? The, the funny thing is um, they might be a, a Norris follower. I think he has quadrants, one, two, three, four. Um, and, and if that's what they're referencing, I think we are in quadrant three and it tells you how, how you invest and how you approach the market in different quadrants. All right. If, if not, what phase are we in? Uh, <laughs> if, not, if not, we need KD to give us some more insight into, into his system of, of ranking. There could be 30, we might phases. be in phase 11 of 10, um, yeah. in some markets at the moment. So, uh, let's see here. So, uh, I can tell you, Jennifer, our a resident um, ass kicker in, in the in, as a mod has been booting people. Like every time I look over, somebody got deleted and or kicked out. So just be just nice. Don't be, just don't be, be stupid nice you, over there. You can hang out as long as you want. All right. So this is a question we get a lot. I don't want to address it every single time it comes up, but we're going to address it um, here just for a minute. I live in New Jersey and don't want to live in the state anymore. Only had two, only had the property two years. Would you sell or hold it? It's an interesting question because you don't want to be there anymore. Sounds like you're going to be moving regardless. So the question is, do you, do you sell or hold? I say you always hold real estate if it makes sense to hold it. So does it, does it, makes sense on a cash flow basis do you need that money for any other reason to buy something else or what have you if you don't then maybe you stay put and keep the property as as what it is and maybe turn it into a rental now not all properties should be rentals um maybe you need the money and you need to sell it the question still remains the, the question that we ask every week and that's sell and do what are you able to find what you're looking for in another state whether it's a house or a rental 
do you have capital gains? Even though you've owned it less than two years, do you have capital gains that you have to pay on top of the uh, tax exempt amount that you that you're going to receive? You know, what is your plan um, after you sell that property? And, and that from there will dictate to me, you know, the answer of, of should you do it or, or should you not do it? I mean, the idea of waiting, if you think you're going to wait and and buy something less expensive, I don't think that's the right answer. If you think you're going to wait and sell it for more, more money in a couple of months, also maybe not the right answer. Maybe you can, but that's not the way to think about it. It's either you're going to do it or you're not. And what are the reasons driving it? And from there, figure out your timeline and your plan. Josh, anything? No, you went you went deep on it. I just look at it as uh, no one should live where they don't want to live. So if you want out of New Jersey and that means you have to sell, sell. If there's a way of keeping it and it makes sense to keep it as a rental, fantastic. But life's too short to uh, to live in New Jersey. I mean, where you don't want to live. All right. There you go. Awesome. Good stuff. Um, we, got, we got we got the follow up, Jeb. So Big okay. G says, I own my home outright in Arlington zip code where oh, the new Amazon headquarters is located. I don't know if I should hang on or sell it. And this is basically the same answer you just gave. Yeah. Sell and do what? Are we going to ring the cash register? We think there's going to be a crash. Do we we're going to go and rent? Is this our only home? Do we own other properties? There's a lot of details that go into that. There's nothing in the current market that tells me anyone should sell a house just because of the market you can and tell here's me the a thing million is, other reasons why you should yeah, but not arlington's just a hot market outside of amazon being located you know there so it's a desirable market for many reasons um you and, and amazon's only going to add to job growth and that sort of thing so the chance i mean it's it seems like it's you know if you don't need to sell it why sell it again it goes back to the same questions i just asked on on the other one so consider those and then make the decision from there um this is, I mean, again, we address this a lot too. Uh, DiCarlo, aside from the regulatory changes to home loan financing that took place after 09, what do you think the differences are or what do you think the differences are between 09 bubble and this one? Primarily, the, the biggest is inventory. I mean, that is, I think, the most important piece in, in the fact that you don't have distressed listings on the market, right? So, and it's more expensive to rent. I mean, there's a lot more things playing into what's going on right here, but really, 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 it, it is a supply issue. It, supply is driving the current market. If you had a lot of supply right now, you wouldn't have this issue, right? Because rates have gone up. There would be more, op, you know, properties to choose from. It would just, it would be a, a you know, a, a different environment as a whole. So, you know, 12 and a half months or so inventory, during the last uh, debacle this time today, hell, I don't know, depending on your market, you might have a month or a month and a half of inventory. So that that's the big difference. And we could go deep into this, uh, but in, in lieu of time and, and what have you, we'll just continue to to move on. But Josh, yeah, anything you want to add on that one? Yeah, on the top, it, it, it's again, it's supply and demand related. Um, the Gen Xers that were coming of prime home buying age in that era was a baby bust generation. So it was a smaller cohort than prior generations. So less home buyers coming into prime home buying age at a time when home building was reaching a peak in the United States. So way overbuilt for a smaller generation coming into home buying age just exacerbated that supply demand issue. And we could go on and on and on, like it, the, forget the regulatory pieces of it, just the, the financing and what it meant at that time um, 
just uh, 180 degrees different than where we're at right now. All right, we got a couple good questions coming up here um, that we are going to address. Uh, this is a really simple one. Um, select hunts. Would you guys recommend an inspection on a new build in this market? I say yes. Yeah, I mean, for because you know new builders go through projects really quickly, get things done really quickly. There is a punch list and things that people have to go through, but I've sold new construction before where some of the outlets didn't work and sort you know, you don't want to have to find that out when you move in, pay a couple hundred bucks, get an inspection, make sure it's done before you move in. Very difficult to get people to come back to do things after you close. So um, I think it's worth the money to, to have an inspection, even on new construction. So here's the question that we, I don't know that we've ever received this question, Josh, what is title insurance and why is it expensive? So when you buy a property, there's something called title insurance. And title insurance basically ensures that there's no liens, no, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Defects here, or clouds in title. Yeah, defects or, or clouds on title. So basically to make sure that there's nothing on title that could affect the ownership after the close of, of escrow for whatever reason, where your ownership could be in jeopardy um and or things that you need to potentially pay um that you know weren't uh again I'm I'm drawing blanks here that weren't taken care of prior to to you closing on the property so the the title insurance ensures that the property is getting a a clean title when it's given to you that's one aspect of title insurance the other aspect of, of title insurance is it's ensuring the lender um that there's no issues with regards to the ownership of that property and, and so, things associated with that. Jim, go, in, go into, there's two sides to, to the title insurance. No, policy. you can, there's, you can, you can dive into okay. it. Yep. So there's, there's a lender's policy, which if you're getting a mortgage, you have to have, and then there's an owner's policy and the uh, owner's so policy what? is cheaper when they're concurrent. So basically they say you can piggyback off of this. So we would always recommend that you get that owner's policy. Title insurance is one of those unique things. It's really in, in the scope of what it protects you for and the fact that it's a one-time premium, it's not that expensive. But for, for all intents and purposes, that owner's policy is gonna be anywhere from 700 to $3,000, depending on where you are and what the purchase price is it's insuring you against something that is almost never going to happen because the title insurance companies do all sorts of research on all of the parties in the transaction and the property and the history of the property before they um, issue that insurance. So, And I'm going to give an example of this in just a minute, a really, really good example that's happening as we speak on a property I have right now. Is but Josh, go ahead and talk about is the a title insurance claim you're going to be talking about? It's not a claim, but they're trying to prevent themselves from having a claim. And we'll talk about that. So the reason why I would say it's expensive is that title insurance payouts um, where, where there's an event or something that they need to pay for are incredibly rare. When I ask people who've been in the business for a long time, hey, have you ever been involved or heard of a title insurance claim? The answer is always no. I've been involved in exactly one. Fortunately, it was my property and I was real happy that we had title insurance. So it's one of those things where do without it at your own peril, but the lender is gonna require you to get it if you're getting a loan. So if, you, uh, if you're paying cash, you don't need an owner's policy or a lender's policy. If you're getting a loan, you need lenders. The owner's is optional. It's sort of like the home inspection. I would yeah, always but, but recommend I, it. In, yeah, in, in this market, your, your agent is typically requesting that you get that. I mean, it's part of almost every real estate transaction. You're getting that owner's policy to make sure you have a clear title. So, um, so example, uh, I'll give you a really good example. So I received a call yesterday from my title officer on a property that we have in escrow. And he says, hey, listen, 
you know, I'm wondering if the owners have a copy of the trust that was on the property. Reach out to the owner. The owner doesn't have a copy of the trust anymore. Calling back and I say, why do you need a copy of the trust? The property's not in a trust name. It's in the owner's name. And he said, well, we look back and in 2012, the property was transferred out of a trust to the individual directly. We need to make sure that, you know, there were no other parties in that trust that that property, you know, that have rights to that property. And I said, well, you know, doesn't the county, because this was new to me, I said, doesn't the county make sure that there's something associated that that person can't just transfer a property out of a trust into their personal name? No, no, nobody does the due diligence. It's the title company's responsibility to make sure that it was done correctly. So in this case, the property was transferred out of a trust into their individual name. And so the title officer called me and said, hey, listen, we need something showing that, you know, that they had the right to do this. And there's no other parties potentially going to come back after we close and say, hey, what? He didn't have the rights to that. You know, we didn't know he transferred that property out of his name. We're actually, you know, the trustee, if you will, of, of the estate. And we should have received the proceeds or the property or what have you. So in this case, the title officer is doing their job to protect the company in this case. And fortunately, my client had some documentation that that showed the transfer and some other things, but they went back through the process to make sure that, again, that there weren't going to be any issues that, you know, the buyer buys this property and somebody comes back and, and has an issue with regards to ownership or what have you. And it, it, at the end of the day, it would end up on on the seller and and uh, and the title company. But nevertheless, it's you know that's what you're paying for is is for that due diligence for somebody to go out and make sure that things are you know the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed. So good stuff. All right. Um, somebody's asking who Jennifer is again. Jennifer is a moderator, so she's, um, she's the boss. Don't make her yeah, mad. Yeah, she's uh, correct. It's oh he but without the a so you you were right josh um say it again say it again and i i forget how you said it no say you were right that was the important part out of here bro (laughs) um my wife doesn't like it when i do that either yeah it rarely happens though um so here's here's again someone following up tc exactly not giving up my low mortgage rate even though i would love to move this is not an uncommon sentiment lots of people be like hey i'd like to move but um to get the nicer bigger better house or better school district better neighborhood it's an extra 200 grand and i give up my three percent rate for a four and a half percent rate it's it's decreasing the supply so that's um it's an interesting question uh, or an interesting response to the previous question and then big g follows up here don't people purchase homes based on monthly payments so house prices will drop with higher interest rates there's a there's a role there between the two and and what we said in 2019 and 2020 why home prices were going up affordability was still high because rates were coming down but we've always said and this is a true fact, even though it was used as a reason in 2005, 2006, why home prices weren't going to drop, home prices are sticky to the upside. People will choose to stay in a home 
before they will sell it at a loss. So when we look at that, uh, there's still the supply and demand issue. So even though the payments are higher, there are still more people that want to buy homes and can afford the new higher payment than there are homes for them to buy. So supply and demand trumps the absolute level of the payment in this instance. Now, and you know, I we, we talk about stocks, you know, just kind of relating things all the time. It's exactly why somebody buys a stock or let's say Bitcoin at say, you know, $50,000 or, or whatever the number is, the stock for $100. And, and say the stock takes a tank, I just dump, right? And it goes down to 20 bucks and, and Bitcoin goes down to $3,000 a coin or whatever. And people don't sell, right? It's for one, it's an emotional thing. They don't want to realize that loss and they just hope, hope, hope that prices are going to come back. So most people just hold on until they do come back to that price. And many times when it reaches that price, people say, oh my God, great. And then they get out and guess what happens? The price continues <laughs> up, right? That That is how the buyer, the, the mentality um, of buyer, uh, you know, whether it's a stock, a house or whatever, it's just, it's it's the emotion that goes into it. And that's why it's very difficult to time markets, whether it's peaks or valleys or whatever it is you're trying to do. It's difficult to do because of the emotion involved. Very few people have that that those nerves that that are needed in order to to make those decisions, regardless of what the circumstances around them. So, and Jeb, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. So we talked about the cyclical nature of California market that not just the big crash in 2007, we've had three or four other corrections. And every one of those was marked by a large increase in the amount of bank owned properties. So generally. 30 to 40% of the supply available in the multiple listing service. And, and why that brings prices down is banks don't want to own homes. They're going to sell them at whatever the market will bear. When you don't have those and you have owners in them, owners don't look at it that way. They look at it exactly the way Jeb said, hey, I don't like what people will pay me for this today. I'm going to hold on to it until people will pay me what I paid for it or what I think it's worth or what I want for it. No, absolutely. Uh, Daniel says, how much diligence money should you offer? So earnest money deposit, upfront money when writing a contract. So I would say it's very dependent on your market, right? I mean, Jennifer comments below, she did 1%. Here in California, many times we're seeing 3% on, on that, uh, that upfront money. So take the advice of your real estate agent when making offers um, because you want to do what the market is typically bearing in that market, what the market's doing in that market so that you're pretty much across the board. So, you know, in the, the example um, I've given before, so a week ago or so now um, offer on a property, we had 21 offers on that property. And I think all, but maybe one or two had a 3% deposit. So that, that was very normal for what's happening in our market. So if your market is 1% or some markets are $500 or whatever, just do what your market's doing and you should be good. But your, your realtor should be able to help you um, with that question. Liz, I read this question and thought she maybe lives in jail. I'm not sure. The concrete <laughs> block. Sub-block H? Yeah, like what's happening there, Liz? Where do you live exactly? Um no, um, all things being serious, uh, hopefully you, you actually do have a house and um, you're happy with it. So let's see. So a big G actually followed up with the, the question behind the other questions. Mm -hmm. I own my home outright in Palm Springs, thinking of moving to Florida. Is this a bad time to sell and move? No, it's a great time to sell. Great time to sell. If you have a plan and can find what you want on the other side, it is going to be a very 
smooth. Well, I can't say that. It depends on who you're working with, but it should be a relatively easy process on one side, a fun process. Maybe, you know, you get more than you hope for a quicker process and maybe a little bit more difficult on the buying side, unless you're in a market that has a lot of inventory. So it is, it is what we talk about every single day. In fact, Tuesday of next week on the Educated Home Buyer podcast, which I, I plugged earlier, we are talking about this question specifically: sell and do what? And we're going to go through that process in detail to help you really, you know, contemplate everything you need to to think about when when maybe selling and moving out of state, or selling and buying something else, or sitting or what have you. So hopefully you find that helpful. But it's it's different for everybody. It's you know, it it could be a, a bad time to sell for somebody that that needs to find a a replacement home here in Huntington Beach. I mean, it it going to be again. It's going to be easy to sell, but it's going to be very difficult on one side finding that property. So for that reason, it might be a bad time to sell. So each, you know, I, each market's a little bit different. I'll go back to the other piece of it. Life's too short to live somewhere you don't want to be. So if you don't want to be in Palm Springs anymore, you want to be in Florida, do it. No, good stuff. Um, lumberjack jab. That is this beard is getting out of control, people. It's got a it's got a mind of its own. Um, so house prices will always be this much, Michael asked. No, not necessarily. Um, you know, again, there's ebbs and flows to a market, right? I mean, I I've come out and said this, and and I could end up being wrong, like I am in in different things, but I don't know that you'll see pre-COVID prices again in a lot of markets. You know, prices here in Orange County pre-COVID were up thirty plus percent for for a lot of those properties, maybe even more on some of them. I don't know that you'll see those prices again, personally speaking. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But but the question is, will home prices always be this high? Maybe, maybe higher. It's it's very difficult to say what the market does. And when it does pull back, how much does it pull back? And for how long does it pull back? And then where does it go from there? Does it go, does it have another leg up? Um, You know, Josh and I have talked you know, ad nauseum about, you know, what we said last year. And, and Josh said, I think prices, you know, appreciation could be 10, 11%. And I said, I thought appreciation be four to 7%. We're both wrong, right? Because market hell, I mean, I, I don't know what they're actually saying the appreciation is so far, but I can tell you from properties that I've sold this year, many of them have gone up 15, 20% from where they were last priced. So, it, you know, you don't know what the market's going to do. You know, we say it every week. The, the market can remain irrational longer than you can stay solvent. And just, again, delete the solvent side and just say the market can remain irrational longer than you can stay patient or longer than you can, you know, than, than you can be hopeful or whatever it is. I mean, that's the reality. And so do, you know, stick to your plan, make the decisions for the right reasons, have a longer term time horizon. And, and you'll probably be happy that you purchased a home. Jeb, you, you made the comment earlier today about the market remaining irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And the thought, the thought that occurred to me is rational is in the eye of the beholder. Oh, what, we're, sure. what we're doing and sitting here saying, and I include Jeb and I in this because we're not buying in the current market. We're looking and saying these numbers are irrational. I'm looking well, at buying investment property. And quite frankly, Josh, I mean, I'm I'm looking at buying a property if the right property presents itself. But we've yet to see that. So because, it's not that I'm not a buyer because I okay. am if the right property comes up. I, what I look at it is every, the people that are out there writing offers, 
they're rational. They're not throwing their money out the window. They're saying, I value owning this home more than I value having this money or not having this large of a mortgage at this interest rate. Like we talked a few weeks back saying, if you look at the 10-year treasury, which at that time was like 1.9, so it's higher now, it's 2.3. But we have people here in the comments section that Jennifer boots out every week and they wanna come in and they say, hyperinflation is coming, hyperinflation is coming. Well, that's interesting that you sitting behind your keyboard have this theory about hyperinflation. People buying bonds out 10 and 30 years are saying, I need 2.3% or 2.5% return to tie my money up for 30 years. That's real investors with real money saying it's perfectly rational because that's my long-term inflation expectations with a return uh, on my investment. So be very careful saying these numbers are crazy. These numbers don't make sense. This market has to crash when there are a large number of people lined up. And these people happen to be, we've had some comments in here. This is crazy. You have to be wealthy to buy. Well, to a degree, these people are well off, well-educated, good jobs, have a chunk of money for their down payment. And they're saying this is rational. You have to step back and say, am I right? Am I missing something? Is it just wishful thinking? Last year, Jeb and I, our projections for appreciation this year turned out to be wishful thinking rather than logic and, and being rational because we didn't want values to go up that high because it means less buyers. But the market is saying, hey, we have more buyers than we need. So there may be more logic and, and rationality to the market than what we're giving it credit for here. Now, I had a really good conversation today with somebody that 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 told me three to five, they see the same market for the next three to five years, just based on supply alone, in, in a way correcting it. Now, again, interesting, I mean, there's a lot to, to un, you know, unpackage and fold there, we're not going to talk about it right now. But I will talk about it in videos and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's, it's, you, again, you got to make the decisions that are right for you. Stop trying to forecast what your home is going to be worth tomorrow. That, that drives me absolutely insane. I mean, I told Josh the other day when I bought a house back in 2012, I didn't, I wasn't thinking what's the house going to be worth next, next week or next year. It was like, could I afford the payment, you know, in, in a year from now, am I still going to be able to afford that payment? My, getting married, growing family, kids, like that's what I needed in my life. It wasn't, and I was in real estate, but I wasn't thinking, hey, listen, what am I going to, you know, what is this thing going to be worth now? It's, you know, it, it's very much, it, I and I realize we're in a mindset with, you know, a lot of external factors and a lot of social media and a lot of people promoting, you know, growth in, in stocks and houses and becoming rich quick and all of that good stuff. And that's great. It's all great. But some of it is just not realistic. So if you're looking to buy the house to make a quick buck, and become rich really quick, you're buying for the wrong reasons. If you're buying because you, you know, you're getting married, or you have a growing family, or you're moving out of your parents home and need a place to, you know, whatever that reason is, that's the right reason to buy, assuming you can afford the payment and and the things associated with it, right? Buying the property because, you know, your buddy bought a property and he made $200,000 over the last couple of years. You want that. That's not the right reason to buy. So just, you know, instead of beating this, this horse to death here, we're going to move on. And and it could have been a dog. It doesn't have to be a horse. Uh, don't don't, don't yeah. beat animals. It's not nice. An animal at all. Yeah, we have PETA. We lost our sponsorship <laughs> with PETA too. Walmart and so PETA Walmart are and PETA are gone. Uh, let's see here. This is a good question, Josh. I don't know that we've ever gotten this one either. Um, if you lock your interest rate and your deal goes south, will the lock remain active while you look for another property? And if so, 
how long will that lock last? A, a standard rate lock is tied to two things, you through your social security number and the property um, in the form of the address. So a standard rate lock is out the window as soon as that transaction goes sideways. Now in the current market, lots of builders, lenders, and even in the wholesale side, we've got two or three lenders now that are offering a lock and shop program. Basically, you are getting locked for a period of time, generally up to about 90 days. If you were locked under a lock and shop, I don't see any reason why they couldn't transfer it to another property, but 95% plus of locks are just a standard lock that was tied to that property and will go away uh, once you back out of that transaction. Good stuff. Pablo's got a question here, but I saw this one too. And this one um, made me think and just, uh, you know, want to want to address it. Heard multiple ads for cash out refinancing on the radio today. Are you aware of the current trend and what do you think of it? So here's the deal. A lot of companies have built companies around the idea of refinancing over the last couple of years because rates have gotten lower. There's a lot of overhead. There's a lot of, you know, people that don't do purchase business and are very much refinance based. And so therefore, they will promote refinances in every way possible to try to get that business. Now, with that said, it could still make sense to refinance depending on what you're trying to do. Um, you know, cash out, you know, there's still people out there that actually have higher rates than the current rates. So it, it, it doesn't make as much sense as it did, you know, three months ago, but it could still make sense depending on your scenario. So you're hearing ads, but it's a marketing thing. It's to get people to call. Um, you know, over promise under deliver with regards to what they can offer to get to get, you know, the phones to ring and then they'll transition it into something else and, and try to sell it. So well, here, as long as we're on the topic of fun things that call center lenders are trying to do in the current market, we have um, she actually joined us and watched the show last week. She didn't know about it when she had reached out to us. Um, but a client that has a higher interest rate. So we're able to lower her rate even in the current market. And she wanted about 50,000 cash out. So we go through it and we said, hey, rates are elevated right now. Let's do this no cost and and not uh, pay points to buy yesterday's rate. And we're going to look a year, two, three years down the line. Hopefully we get an opportunity to get you further down into the threes on this. So everything's good. We open the loan and then she sends me an email the next afternoon and says, hey, I did some digging around online and I found a lender that's able to give me a percent lower interest rate. And you go, like we talked about earlier, if someone tells you they're a percent lower than someone else, they're 100% full of shit. So I said, cool, send over the numbers and let's take a look at it. So she sends over the numbers and sure enough, uh, $300,000 loan was charging over $12,000 to get that interest rate. So four points, which is about your, your rule of thumb to get you a percent lower. When we talked about, hey, let's accept this for what it is. We're lowering your payment and getting you the cash out that you want. And then we're gonna look for an opportunity to get that lower rate for free in the future. This person said, um, and it was a terrible loan officer, but a very good salesperson because the sales pitch, borrower's a PhD, she's a smart woman. Um, but the sales pitch was, well, we're gonna pay off these two credit cards and that's 200 bucks. And then we're $700 total lower than the other lender. You take that $700, you put it towards principal and you're gonna pay the loan off 16 years sooner, even though we're giving you a $12,000 larger loan. Well, when you unpack that, 
she was going to use the $52,000 we were giving her to pay off the two credit cards. So yes, she was losing those 200, saving those $250 a month. They also left out that our payment include taxes and insurance. So the $700 was actually $150 difference for $12,000 difference in cost. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. We've got some sharp salespeople. The ones that are left in the call centers um, are the best ones. Most of them have been let go. So their best right. salespeople are there. And this guy knew how to pitch and sell someone. Again, this woman's a PhD. She is not dumb. But if you look, he didn't give her a loan estimate. He gave her this pitch of how we're going to save and we're going to, you're going to borrow $12,000 more, but we're going to pay your home off 16 years sooner. So when we unpacked it, it all made sense. Where she goes, yeah, it sounded too good to be true. And I thought maybe this is a new thing. Well, one of my buddies on Facebook, he's a, a lender. Um, you know him, Jason Sharon down yep. in South Carolina. He posts that he has a client that he's talking to doing a VA Earl. So again, same thing. They have a rate up in the fives. And even with higher rates today, it makes all the sense to do it. And sure enough, the payoff demand goes into Mr. Cooper, their lender. And what do you know? The call center calls up and says, we can do better than that. They sent out a rate that was a percent lower with four and a half points. And it was a, it was a $250,000 loan. So we're going to steal $10,000 of your equity to make you feel better about having a three handle on your interest rate instead of a four. You have to look at things in the big context. And the thing is, you guys don't do this every day. You don't borrow every day. We can call these people in the call centers hacks, but they are professional salespeople in the sense that they know psychology. They know what you're going to react to. They know what your hot buttons are and they know how to pitch things and what to avoid. They're not advisors. They're not there to help you do better, but that's what you're dealing with with the, the call centers. You know, a couple comments before this, Eamon says mortgage lenders are struggling right now. Refinance is plummeting 100% because most people that could benefit were aware that in 2020 and 2021, we have generational lows in interest rates and they refinance. So we have refinances going, but like 20%, 25% of what we had the last few years. Right. So if you're in the market and it makes sense or you have a real need for money, by all means, please don't call one of these call center lenders. They are going to sell you at all costs and it's likely to include lots of points to get the interest rates from January. No, good stuff. Um, so we got a, a lot of positive comments here, like positive comments. So um, Cream Disco, you guys do a great job every week. Mary Grace, love watching you guys weekly. Uh, a lot of that and, um, you know, content is great. So with that, I'm going to ask again that favor. There's 371 of you. I think that's the most I've ever seen on here. Hit the thumbs up, you know, if you find any value in the content again. I appreciate it. I appreciate the support. It helps more people see it. It gets more people on the show like this every week when YouTube thinks that people actually like the content. And so they push it out. And that's how it grows. And with that, get more people and help more people and educate more people and, helps us accomplish what we're trying to do here. So with that, Josh, there, there was a question here that I wanted to put up. Um, I didn't, do you think lender credit fees are going to go up? Um, now, I don't know if they mean credit fees in the sense of, of credit. I, I think they're asking about lender, like lender, credit. lender credits. So, so I, I know they took a hit. I'm riding the wave, hoping for a better lender credit. So I think what Pablo is asking for the thing you have to remember is that a lender credit is a function of interest rates. Pablo can still get the same lender credit that he could have got a month ago or three With months ago. Rate. It's just a higher interest rate. So in general, like we can do an FHA purchase in California with our fee structure and prepaids and get you in with just your down payment with about a 2% lender credit. To get a 2% lender credit, you're taking about a higher 
uh, interest rate by about a half percent to get that. Sometimes it's five eighths, sometimes it's three eighths, but it's about a half percent higher in interest rate. So Pablo, it's there. It's just, you know, in, in December when rates uh, on FHA were two and a half and you had to go to 3%. Now when it's 4%, you gotta go to four and a half to, to get that. And if your lender is not offering it, I will say there's been a little bit of compression as rates go up, lenders are less, uh, they're more averse to giving the big lender credits because they're worried that, hey, they're going to pay you a bunch of money and they need five, six years of payments to recoup that, that at some point rates are going to drop and you're going to refinance. They don't get their money back. So there is some truth to lender credits being slightly smaller and you may have to go to five eighths instead of a half percent to get the same lender credit. All wall rates have gone up a percent and a half. It's a bitter pill to swallow. All right. So we're going to get to, to Jennifer's uh, credit. I mean, her credit, her uh, uh, super chat here in just a minute. Um, so thank you for that, Jennifer. But uh, DJ, DJ o Savani. Oh, D. DJ Viani. Viani's in here. <laughs> D. Josvani. I have no idea. I don't want to butcher it. My rent is considerably low compared to the average in Southern California. Does it make sense to purchase now and pay double for a mortgage or hold off and continue saving? Continue saving. So there's a little bit to unpack there. But here's what I want to say. If you can buy what it is that you're looking for in a house now, the payment makes sense. You can afford it. I think it's the right time to buy a house. Now, here, here's what I mean by a lot to unpack. Um, when you buy something versus rent, right now you're renting. And let's just say hypothetically, you're paying $1,500 a month. That $1,500 a month is going nowhere. Goes to you know the, the landlord who owns the property. You're paying down their principal balance and or they're putting money in their pocket because of cash flow or what have you. When you own that property, you're getting the benefits of forced savings. You're Every single month you make that payment, even though it's higher than what you're paying in rent, a portion of that for one is paying down the principal on the loan and going into that forced savings account. Secondly, you get appreciation. The you know on average, Josh, what have we seen in in California over the last thirty years? Four to five percent appreciation, three to four uh, percent. California is on the high side, somewhere between five and seven percent. So yeah, na so nationwide it's four point six, going back to like the sixties. So Southern California is a little higher than that. So so let's just say four. Let's say four percent is a safe number on average. So if you bought that three hundred thousand dollar property on average it's going up about twelve thousand dollars a year and then that four percent is you know readjust based on the 312 so each year it's going up a little bit more again you're going to have corrections and what have you it's an average over a historical period of time so it makes sense to buy the property as long as you're buying it for the right reasons and and, and it's important to note longer term time horizon right it's if you're buying again for the short term it may, be not, may, may not be the best time to buy a house, but if you're buying it, looking to hold on to it, you know, you're going to be there five, seven, 10 years. Um, it, it, and you can afford the payment. You're not stretching yourselves. It makes sense to buy that property, even if it's more than your rent. That's okay. You know, Southern California is not like other parts of the country where your your, your rent is is what you, you could buy a place and your rent would be the same. That's not the same in California, but those states also don't get the appreciation and a lot of the other benefits that we here in California get and are able to see. So again, a lot to unpack there, but you know, if you can find the right property in this market and, and it, you know, financially makes sense to you, I think that's, that's the time to start doing it. That's when you should be thinking about it. You know, Jeb, the, the alternate way to think about it, uh, there's not with everything, there's no right or wrong answer, but we've talked here before, 
if you couldn't afford and it wasn't an option to buy, you still have to be planning your path to financial freedom and home equity and eventually a free and clear home is not a part of that. So when you're renting and you have a well below market interest rate, so say a normal person is looking at a 20% increase in their housing payment if they buy versus renting, and you're looking at a 50% increase, it's really important that you're not living further, uh, not above your means, but you're not, it, you, you want to use that savings to your benefit and make sure you're funding 401ks, you're funding IRAs, you're saving and investing to get yourself closer to freedom, um, financial freedom. And the other point to make would be is, there's no such thing as fixed rent. Your landlord right now um, could keel over and die and their family could sell the property. He, the, he, could, he or she could sell the property. They could come to their senses and raise their rents. So it's a temporary benefit that you have no control over, which would lean more towards buying if the time is right for you in your life and you could afford a property you'd be happy with. So, um, yes. So, so earlier Jennifer asked us to unpack um, the comments that JDR is, is making in the in the the comments and here's what i'll do jennifer i'll refund you your ten dollars so we don't have to go down the rabbit hole of addressing something that's completely erroneous saying that you know the data shows that home prices have already peaked and they're already declining no home prices are not going down i, I don't know what you're looking at and what chart you're reading i mean the, the fact that you state that people don't know how to read charts perhaps you should reread the chart <laughs> i mean it's really simple um it, it Prices are not going – tell me any home buyer – and I should do a poll in here and ask people, are, are prices going down? What in the hell are you talking about? Prices are not going down. But it's not worth addressing in here um, in any detail, so we're not going to spend time on it, um, Jennifer. But uh, I will use that $10 to uh, to ship you a shirt. How's that? And, and I'll give you your $10 back, too. Um, wrap, wrap it in a $10 bill. Yeah, I'll wrap it. It would be a really small shirt. <laughs> or a really big $10 bill, one of the two. Uh, let's see here. Um, I mean, there's just so much here. I mean, here's a good positive comment from someone. Um, Realist Academy probably has a YouTube channel. Um, just closed on a house, was trudging through the market for six months with my wife. He refused to give up our rational approach. We were about to give up, and next week we got our offer. Uh, we got our we got first dibs on an off-market deal. Um, stick with it. First time home buyers. It is possible. It is possible. Yeah. Stick to your plan. We talk about it every week. Don't get caught up in, you know, um, crazy clickbait videos and watch them every single day, um, unless they're mine. And then in which case it's okay. But no, um, in, in all reality, don't, you know, create a plan, stick to it and, and stop following the, the craziness of the market. Um, it just, it can become overwhelming and, and just create additional stress on top of a process. That's already a stressful process to start. Um, let's see, Josh, this is a, a question that we we've addressed it many times, not in the um, exact way, but is it true? You can't lock a mortgage on a new construction until it's completely built. Absolutely not. Uh, again, we can lock anything that has an address and a borrower. So um, you absolutely can lock it. Uh, longer term locks can get expensive. Builders are having uh, problems with uh, a tight labor market and supply chains. So you might, 
do a 90 day lock for your home that's going to be completed in 80 days to find out it's finished in 120 days. So the lock may not be as valuable as you think, but you can absolutely, we get people asking every week. It's one of the bigger questions. Hey, I got new construction. It's not going to be complete till July 27th. Should I do this long lock? Someone here earlier in the show said, hey, I locked uh, for my closing in June at 4.99. Did I do the right thing? Time will tell, but uh, you can absolutely do a, a longer term lock. Yeah, lock it, leave it alone, move on. There you go. Um, Ariana Grande says, my mom has owned her house for 50 years. Not Ariana Grande. That's what I see when I see that. But anyway, um, does she have to pay capital gains tax if we sold and didn't put all the money back into another home? Only some of it. So this is an interesting question because I we talked about this today on the podcast. So when you sell a home, I don't care if you've owned it 50 years, 25 years, or what have you, you, if you've lived in it two of the last five years as a primary home. So in this case, if your mom lived in that property two of the last five years as her primary home and she's single, she gets up to $250,000 of tax-free gain on that property. So she could make $250,000 above and beyond the base of what she paid for that property and not have any capital gains taxes. If she's married, that number moves to 500,000 in tax-free gains. Now, if she's owned it 50 years, there's many people here locally in my market that bought houses for say $20,000. Some of those houses now are worth 2 million bucks. Um, so in that case, you would have a really sizable capital gains tax and you would only be exempt from a small portion of it if you went to sell it um, prior to them passing and being left in a trust. There are some other things that, that can protect the capital gains there. But here, let's just talk about selling it um, outright. Yes, there is a sizable taxable taxable tax tax gain there, uh, potentially. Now, there's things that you can take out of that that basis, if you will. You know, improvements made and what have you. There's a lot to again to unpack on that question. But here's what I want to address because many people have the wrong um, a misconception of how this works. They think if they took that entire amount and put it into a new property, that there's no taxes. That is not how it works at all. That only works on investment property to investment property. When you do a 1031 tax exchange, you sell an investment property, you take whatever gain it is that you gain on that property and put it into another like investment property. And again, there's certain criteria that it has to meet. It has to be more expensive and other factors that play into that. You're not, again, then you're not uh, avoiding taxes entirely. You're just delaying when those taxes have to be paid. When you're selling a primary, you only get that amount of tax-free gain, at which point anything above and beyond it has to be paid the next calendar year when you file your taxes. It, there, you don't get exempt just because you put that entire amount into another property. And it's important to note that because a lot of people right now are selling, you know, because the market has appreciated so much and they think, well, I've got all of this money. I'm going to go buy a property with all of this gain. That's great as long as all of that gain is tax-free and or you're aware of the potential tax consequences on that money. The last thing you want to do is go out and buy a property with the entire proceeds and come to find out tax year comes around, you've got a 30% you know, capital gains tax on a portion of that and having to come up with that money. That's not going to be fun. And you ought, that is going to happen to people because people don't think through the process and address all these questions. So 
Um, Josh, anything you want to add on that one? I mean, we literally had this conversation earlier today. Oh, and it, it's funny that that misconception is prior to the current tax code being written to give you the 250 and 500 K exclusions. That was the guideline. If you sell That's, a primary residence yeah, and you a buy a ago. primary residence and you roll it into it, you don't have to pay taxes on it. It was replaced with the current exemptions that don't require you to buy uh, another property. So, um, no, that's really, you, you, you covered all of it. No, good stuff. Um, you know, I don't know. I try to read some of these questions before I put them up, but then I look awkward sitting here, just staring at the screen and not saying anything. So I'll just put it up and read it here and then see if we can address it. So a hundred thousand dollars salary, zero debt, can't afford to buy a 1200 square foot condo in a nice area of OC California. Is this normal or sustainable? Is it normal? Normal? Probably not. Is it sustainable? Yeah, potentially. I mean, you know, you're at, you know, $100,000 salary. Um, you know, what does that break down into a month, Josh? 8,300 bucks? Yeah. Is that what it is? 8,300? Um, so if you took 43% of that 8,300, say you had no debt, I mean, you're more, that's about four grand a month, or give or take. It's probably less than four grand. So that means, you know, you've got to buy a property, a condo, principal, interest, taxes, and insurance, plus HOA dues. I mean, you know, depending on your down payment, you know, that's not going to get you a, a, a large property by any means with regards to, to, to dollar amount. So, you know, if, how, how long is it going to take prices to come back to a level where you could buy something in that market? I mean, there are things out there you could buy now, but depending on whether or not you want to live there. And it sounds like nice area and that sort of thing, obviously, you know, those properties that were once, 500,000 are now 750. And it's, I, I don't, is that sustainable? At the moment, it is because demand, there's still a lot of willing and able demand out there. Josh talked about it at the beginning of the show, willing and able. There's always willing people, willing to buy, willing to, you know, Josh always uses the example. He and I are both willing to live on the beach in Malibu, right? I mean, we're, but we're not able to buy a house in, in Malibu on the beach. It just, financially. And so at some point you do reach a threshold, but we haven't seen it yet. And, but, and so but think, but think about that example, Jeb, home prices aren't dropping in Malibu, even though they're absurd because there is plenty of able demand that when one comes on the market, another multimillionaire says, I'll take that one. So as crazy as it sounds, you're at a hundred thousand dollars, but there's plenty of people that are making 180,000 or $250,000 to buy it. So it doesn't necessarily make sense to you. Um, or to anyone. I mean, $100,000 is a good income. It's not the same as it was 20 years ago, but it's a good income. I remember, and I'll tell people this example, when I started in the 90s in 1996, the first time I saw a borrower that made six figures, I was like, this is amazing. This person is incredibly rich. Now, if we don't have a combined household income well into the six figures, much like you're seeing, it is really hard to qualify for anything in Orange and L.A. County. If we get a little further out, it's possible, but it's getting real tough in Orange and L.A. County without being well into six figures for household income. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, reading questions here, looking for something. Um, this is something we get often, Josh, maybe just, uh, you know, touch on this real quick. Is it? cheap to build your house or to buy a house. So the way I read this question, is it less expensive to build versus buy something existing on the market today? I'm throwing that your way. So, I mean, yeah, this is, this is the big thing. You might be able to pencil it out. You might be able to go to a builder and have them say, 
yes, you can do this. And then when you look at, okay, I can buy a piece of land. Okay. And I add up all my numbers, but then you have to look at a more expensive loan, carrying costs, the likelihood that it's going to take longer to build and permit than you think. The fact that materials keep getting more, not less expensive. There's so much variability in there that for a first time buyer wanting cost certainty and low cost to get into the market, to me, there's not enough risk for you to take that on. Now, buying new construction that someone else is building and will put under contract at a fixed cost because of their ability to finance and carry costs and build and take the risk of, of profit on that is, is different. But for a first time buyer, the thought of building your own home. Like for me, I've flipped over 40 houses in my life and it's the thought of building one scares me. I would want to be in a very secure financial position before I considered that. There you go. Um, someone in here asked if, if, oh, Oso says, is is this a seller's market now in your area, Orange County? It Yeah, it has been a seller's market for a number of years. Um, in fact, it has been a buyer's market or a balanced market, I think, since 2013-ish. It was a little bit more balanced, but since then, it's pretty much, I mean, it, it hasn't been a hot seller's market, super hot seller's market like the one we're seeing now, uh, but it's been in favor of sellers for quite some time. So, and it, it's going to be that way for, for a little bit. Um, let's see. Are you guys going to answer any questions? Somebody said that it's, no, we're just going to sit here and talk. I mean, <laughs> that, just, that was at six just... o'clock. I mean, hell, we had been on an hour at that point. <laughs> um, were, were we still talking an hour into this thing? Uh, I'm trying to read some questions, guys, and get you something that you came here for some of value. Um, Josh, you see something you like? No, I just actually just rolled across the the home home prices dropping since August of last year. In oh, Jesus, that guy's a moron. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm seeing a lot. I'm trying to, guys. We got a lot of comments here. Um, so this one, Dan. Okay, so he he's addressing that dummy. Um, God, he really he really fed up the uh, the the chat here with regards. To... <laughs> um, here we go. So Michael says, should you sell by owner or sell with a real estate agent? So obviously, this is a self serving um, answer, but it's also one that will protect you. And you should sell with a real estate agent unless you really know, um, you know, disclosures and, and everything that goes into the process of selling your home. It's, you know, yeah, it's easy to put a, a sign in your yard and get buyer activity. But here's the thing. If you put it, you know, a realtor lists your home, you know, it gets more exposure for many reasons. A sign in your yard is only going to get so much exposure. So that's one thing. And an exposure drives demand, demand drives price. So exposure equals higher price. And so the more eyes on that property, typically speaking, that the more money you're going to net from that property. So that's one side of, of the equation. Secondly, disclosure, right? California is a very, um, uh, what's the right word here, Josh? Legal, I'm looking for, uh, anyway, uh, 
Sue Happy State. Um, I can't think of the word. My mind is not litigious. Working. Litigious. There we go. Litigious state. Um, and, and so it's very easy to get sued um, for not doing things properly. People, you know, not do- dotting your I's, crossing your T's. Hiring a real estate agent protects you from a lot of that stuff because the broker takes on a lot of that responsibility when you hire them um, in order to to do the process. So. You know, many people believe for sell by owners, I put a, a sign in the yard, I end up selling the property for for less money than I have to pay in commissions. A lot of times you end up paying a buyer's commission anyway, so and, and you end up less money for the property. So typically speaking, you net more money when having an agent. Second, I mean, thirdly, an agent's not there just to get an offer on your house. They're there to help you make sure that the buyer that buying your house is qualified um and that all again all the i's are dotted t's are crossed on that buyer but again negotiation to help you with the negotiation process to walk you through everything that needs to be done there we're not there in this market especially i'm not there to 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 market your property i mean anybody going into this market saying hey listen we're gonna put your property online and we're gonna sell that's that's a very small percentage of of what we're doing. You know, we're going to go door knock the neighborhood and let them know your house is for sale. Great. But the, the the market is going to sell your home. The lack of supply is going to sell your home. My job is to make sure whoever buying your home is qualified, that they're the best candidate to help you walk through the process of making the decision when you do get 20, 30 offers on the property. How, you, how do you decide? More importantly, when they come back and want to ask for you know, credits and whatever that you're there to have someone negotiate, help you walk through that process, understand what is normal, what's not, and and really get to the finish line ultimately. So in short, hire a realtor. We've got a good one here from a gentleman I've spoken with before. JT Owensby, is down payment assistance a good idea for someone with good income, but no upfront capital for a first time buyer? So you're here in California. In California, we do not have any great uh, down payment assistance options. So the most common, biggest by far is California Housing and Finance Authority. They have a couple of different programs. They will give you either a second mortgage of 2% or 3% of the loan amount. And it does not have uh, any interest or payments. So silent second, no interest, no payments. You can also get a, a third mortgage from them. Um, I think it's at 3% interest, 3.5% interest, and it's uh, three, it may be at 2% interest, and it's 3 or 3.5% 3 of the, the purchase price capped at 15000 So if you did both, you can get in with little money out of pocket. The problem is they charge a much higher than market interest rate for the, the zip plus three, which is the 3%. Um, and you have a second and a third lien against your property that you need major appreciation going forward. So if you did an FHA or a 3% down conventional with that, you end up owing 102, 103% of the value of the home. You need appreciation just to be able to break even. And we talk about when you buy, if you put 5% down, you need to sell in six weeks, you need a little bit of appreciation just to break even. If you're at 102, 103%, you need like 10% appreciation before you'd be able to sell and, and break even. So I look at it and say, if we're in a, a yellow flag market right now, being meaning be cautious, be certain about your decision, have a longer time frame. to me, they're a little bit risky. If you can come up with your own down payment 
3% conventional, 3.5% FHA, and go with the lender credit to cover all your closing costs and all of your prepaids, it's a better route to go. So I don't remember what price point you're looking at um, and how much that 3.5% would be, but I would exhaust and explore all options before looking at down payment assistance. Now, for those of you that are in different parts of the country, some areas have nice down payment assistance programs that look more attractive than what we have available to us here in California. Good, good stuff. Um, we got a congratulations to Jeff. Got an offer accepted, so congratulations to you. Um, got a question here about property taxes and Melarus. Cyrus is asking, can property taxes go down for Melarus new built areas? So Melarus is a tax here in California. Um, other states have it as well, but what Melarus is is it's a tax in, in new construction communities. It's an additional tax on top of your property taxes that pays for like infrastructure um, improvements to a neighborhood. Maybe it creates parks or schools or fire departments or whatever it is, streets and, you know, uh, sewer systems or whatever it is. It's an infrastructure tax. So the question is, can property taxes go down for Melarus areas? And the answer is, is yes, but Melarus typically has a lifespan on it. Um, it's a bond. Um, and, and, and usually it's 25, 35 years, depending on when it was issued and for how long or what have you. There's ways to find it out with the county. Um, but once that falls off, property taxes will go down in the sense that you just pay the typical property taxes for that community, whatever the percentage is for that community without the Melarus. But it takes a while to get there. Now, if you're asking if you just bought a, a new construction property and there is Melarus on it now with the property taxes on it now, well, can that go down? Not really. Um, it, you know, it will take time for 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 that Melarus to come off. And, you know, if your property, if property values around you decline, you don't automatically get a decline on your property taxes, especially unless, you know, if it's just small declines. If you sell, <coughs> excuse me, substantial drops, in home prices, you might be able to um, try to get the county to, to reassess, and, and that's a whole different conversation, but you're not seeing that in this market. Josh, anything you want to add on that one? No, Melarus are not fun. I like to avoid them uh, wherever possible. There you go. Um, let's see, but it's very difficult. I mean, I would tell you 90, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm guessing here a percentage, but the, a very high percentage of new construction communities here in California have those those bonds, those Melarus taxes on them. So you're very, very difficult to avoid them. And if you're buying in a community that has them, you can't just say, hey, I'm not paying that. It's part of the deal. So you can't get around it. Jeb, I know you said yep. we, were, we were not going to do it, but I'm going to do it anyways. No, um, we're not talking about no, uh, because because people keep asking, what's what's the data? Can I see the data? Show it to me. So okay. here's here's the chart. This is median sales price of houses sold for the United States. So that tells you the percentage uh, or the number at, at which half of home prices sell above it, half sell below it. it median. Tells you nothing about the sales price of homes. If you look at anything like Case Shiller which is a paired sales analysis. So it's the same home over time. So we're not looking at people shifting to smaller homes. Like if you look back here, part of the reason why from 2007 to 2009, this was such a big dip from 257 down to 208 on the median 
is because more foreclosed homes were selling. Sold. So yeah, more exactly. stuff on the low end. So the median was coming down far more than what a paired sales analysis like Case Schiller did. So when you jump in here with some crazy theory that you get from watching ReVenture consulting videos too long, and you tell people they don't know how to read a chart, you should probably know what median means and why a median can come down while home prices are going up. So again, please don't insult people when your own intelligence is not great enough to keep up with the conversation. I mean, if I could drop the mic here, I would. It would make a lot of noise, but uh, no, good stuff. I mean, that's the way to address it. I wasn't going to address it at all. So, um, you know, if you're a buyer in this market, you know that prices aren't going down. Um, if you're if you're if you're living with your mom and watching YouTube videos at night, you may not understand. Hey, you watch it now. No I'm kidding. Um, let's see. Um, I'm I'm looking for comments. I mean, not comments. I'm looking for questions here. Um, Josh Solano, Alex says, a title insurance. Do you need an owner's policy on a refinance? So you're getting a refinance on a property. Do you need the owner's policy when you do that? No, you were insured at the purchase. Uh, the only reason why you might want it is if you didn't get it when you purchased. But as long as you bought it when you purchased, you're already covered. The new loan doesn't extinguish that. The new loan requires a lender's policy because that's a new loan, a new lender. The previous lender was insured by the previous lender's policy. There you go. And typically when you're doing refinances, title insurance is going to be less expensive as well. So you're not going to pay the same fee that you paid you know, when, when you bought the property with regards to a lender's policy. There's usually, you know, lower fees being um being offered at that time and, and many times you you know your lender like in this case josh has gone out and negotiated really good fees with the, the company he likes to send business to because again if you send a lot of business to a company you can negotiate this sort of thing and so you know you're you're getting the best fees when you've got a a great uh you know a mortgage expert on your side helping you negotiate so something to keep in mind there um I'm looking, people. I'm looking. I'm looking for questions. Well, so <clears throat> my my voice is actually going out here, Josh. So <clears throat> you might have to step up. Um, well, is it look. possible to buy a piece of land and then place a manufactured home on it? And the answer is yes, you can. Um, but typically not as easy as as um, just just as I said it. Right. So you've got to be able to buy the land. Many companies out there don't finance land. It's it's difficult to find a bank. Um, you know, a lot of credit unions, a lot of your local banks might do financing on land, but a lot of brokers, a lot of people out there, it's difficult to get land finance for one. Um, secondly, manufactured homes or mobile homes or whatever you want to classify them as are also can be difficult to, to, to get financing on. Um, in some of these cases separately from the land. So there's a lot going on there um, with that. And quite frankly, I don't think Josh, I'm going to speak on Josh's behalf. Neither of us are probably the right person to um, get into a lot of detail about land and manufacture just because we don't see a lot of it. But Josh, what do you want to add? We don't on see a lot of it, but the thing that I was going to add is you can use one-time closed construction loans to buy land and place a manufactured on it. Mm -hmm. So the, the person that asked previously about new construction for a first-time home, um, you guys will probably get tired of me saying it. There's some pretty bitching manufactured homes out there. So if you can find a piece of land that you're happy with and could get a one-time closed construction loan and basically that 
you're, you're not dealing with months. You know that, hey, my home's going to be built this time. I close here and they come and put it on the, the property. Um, it can be a good way to to get into the market at, at a good cost. And and so here I actually shot a video. I don't know when I'm going to post it, but with uh, one of the higher ups at USDA um, where we talked about USDA loans in detail, um, you know, qualifications, pros, cons, not really a lot of con. Well, there are a couple, but mainly pros of using it. And you can do construction to perm um, with with uh, USDA. You can also do manufactured with USDA on land. Um, they've they've actually adopted some of the FHA guidelines, not fully, but, you know, with new manufactured and, and that sort of thing. So there, there's some stuff to unpack there, and I, I don't know when I'm going to post the video uh, just because it doesn't really fit into the schedule that I have at the moment, but it is a good video where we go into detail. It's a 30-minute deep dive into – or 20-minute deep dive into USDA. So um, I'll keep you guys up to date on that video when it gets posted so you can get some information, especially if you're looking for a zero down, you know, potentially have your closing costs covered, lower credit scores. USDA offers a lot of benefits in in that regard. And a lot of the country, you know, 97%, I think, is is the number is actually deemed rural um, and could potentially use a USDA loan. Now, here in Southern California, you know, around where we are, they're not as um, as common because of that. Uh, I had I had someone said I looked like a char his character from Red Red Dead Redemption or something here. I, I like post it, man. Let's see it. I got told um, that I looked like uh, the one from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the little guy that had the, the afro. Uh, I, took it, I took it as an insult. Dude, you should. You, you have that photo of you with an afro a couple weeks ago when you were in the humidity? You need to I'll, post that thing. It's fantastic. I'll find it. If you can keep talking, I can. Dude, you should just rock that 100% of the time. People would have a different respect for you. It works in Orlando. It's much, much harder in California. But Abram says I look like his character from Red Dead Redemption, too. So let's see a picture, man. Let's see what I look like. Um, Oh, these people, you know, it's amazing how many people will actually sit here and listen to you talk when they um, are just trolls and just want to put comments in the in the thing. So let's look, look at a couple of things here that I think is so dude X says so 100,000 a year income is now considered impoverished. No, absolutely not. No. Even in Southern California, $100,000 income, you're going to pay your bills just fine. It's just getting the things that you want are not the the, the same as what they once were. Um, you know, Nikki follows up with, hey, in Oklahoma, 100,000 is living well. And that's that's the difference. And that's why one of the reasons why a lot of people are moving out of California. If you have a $100,000 a year job in Southern California, you can't buy a house and you can go to Oklahoma and maybe you only make $85,000, but you can own a nice three bedroom, two bath house and raise your family might be a reason to move to Oklahoma. Some people say, no, I'm going to stay here and rent because California is awesome. And I absolutely get that. Everything that people tell you is, is awesome about California is correct. Everything that people tell you is awful about California is correct. So it's just a, a balance and we all weigh what, what is more important and what is less important. Good stuff. Good stuff. Um, um, so David, uh, mentions a question here. Did we, uh, did I, I, I guess I never put it back on this one, but nevertheless, um, 
says, have you touched on your content or past videos? Why California real estate is expensive because of NIMBYs, basically um, not in my backyard. Why not, why not much high density building around single family home neighborhoods? So basically what David is saying is the reason that California home prices are expensive is because a lot of the locals in communities don't want high density projects. Therefore, it's limiting the supply of homes and that is creating issues with regards to supply and what have you. There's definitely a portion of that happening in many neighborhoods. Um, but what I can tell you is from somebody that lives in a city um, that's done a bunch of high density projects over the last seven or eight years, the, the city wasn't built um, infrastructure wise, you know, uh, with that in mind, the high density stuff. And so it creates, yes, it, it solves one problem with regards to creating supply, but it creates other problems with regards to traffic and, and just, you know, uh, maintenance on streets and just, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. It is not as simple as, Hey, yeah, you guys aren't building and therefore it create, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's creating these issues. It's a factor. Uh, it is not the simple issue. It is, is a factor in what goes into creating these problems. But, you know, I'm not a, against high density um, entirely. I'm against high density when you don't think through the process and, the, and, and your city council just approves a bunch of high density uh, projects all at one time without really considering what it's going to do to, you know, the surrounding area. And that's essentially what many markets have seen. So, yeah, does it play into prices? Absolutely. Is it the sole driver and why we're in this situation? The answer is absolutely not. Um, and, and and there's another thing that I want to point out too, and this is not this is not addressing this at all, is that you know, new construction at the moment we need to build uh, we new construction. There needs to be about five hundred thousand more homes built each year to meet current demand. And that has to happen for 10 years, right? So currently building about one and a half, 1.6 million homes a year, you need to build about 2.1 million a year to keep up with, with projected demand over the next 10 years. But here's the thing. If the market does turn, you see a pullback in home prices, you see the market shift at all, a correction. Guess who the first people to stop participating in that market are? Home builders. Because they they've got to forecast out what their projections are and, and building and and cost and all of that stuff. And you're going to see if the market did turn for whatever reason, and, and you saw a big correction, home builders stop building, they stop pulling permits, they stop going through the process, and then that creates additional issues down the road. So the supply issue is way more complex than just simply what's on the market now and new con, you know new construction coming to the market, a lot of people, well, the, the problem needs, you know, the solution needs to be that the market corrects and then we'll see all of this supply and, and then there'll be all this new construction out there. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe the builders say, you know what, during the last debacle, they said, hell, we're not building here. We saw a lot of projects here locally. I mean, Pacific city, for example, Josh, that was a project that was sp supposed to start market goes sideways. They lose funding shit goes, you know, it just goes the other direction. They end up selling that project off. It doesn't get built for until the market in, you know, starts to come back. So 
And it was supposed to be condos and it ended up all apartments. It's super complex um, in, in a lot of this stuff. So um, I went off on a tangent there. So uh, yeah, sorry guys, but that's right. That's what happens. Um, We're pushing. What's that? We bring a little levity to the situation for everyone. Sure. Let's hear it. All right. Look at that. Look at that hair. This is, this, this is what happens when uh, you go to Orlando in uh, 100% humidity and thunderstorm and your your hair reacts a little differently than in California. No, <laughs> that's, that's great. Uh, all right, we're going to end the show on a positive note, right? Because we're doom and gloom. I've had several people reach out to, or comment tonight that we're all about doom and gloom and that is so depressing to listen to us. So we're going to have a moment of silence. For those that said the market would crash a year ago and we're going to swoop in to buy cheap houses in 2022, we're going to give them a round of applause for all those that pulled the trigger. People, yeah, if you're out there, you're following it, you're doing it for the right reasons, congrats to you. Coinster, thanks for all the support. You always comment on videos and always around, and we appreciate that. Um, What we're going to do here is what we always do, and that is ask for you to click the thumbs up. Share it with a friend. Um, I don't know. Where are we at on likes? Did we reach 200? 206. Thank you, guys. That is maybe our max. I don't remember. Uh, but we do appreciate you being here. Appreciate the support. Ask that you, again, you want a free T-shirt, register in the uh, the little link at the top. Free educated homebuyer T-shirt. You know, you can wear it to, to work out or do something fun in. Um, we appreciate you, you being here and, and showing the support and want to give back. So we'll do a live drawing and we'll keep doing this each week and give away some t-shirts and give away some merch to you guys who, uh, who continue to follow us and, and show us some love. Uh, in addition to that, check out the podcast every Tuesday. We update, uh, we appreciate you like us, review us, all that good stuff. Josh parting words this week. No, it's a fun market. We live in interesting times, war, inflation, high housing prices. But the important thing is um, know what you want, have goals, be realistic about it, and make the best decision for you. And don't show up and, and troll people online. There you go. Great advice. Again, we will see you next Wednesday. We'll do this again. We appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube and make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.